You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. This is the Apple Insider Podcast, recording on Thursday, June 25th. I have with me today, Dan. Hello from California. Welcome. And Mikey from Honolulu. Aloha. Mahalo. So I'm your host, Victor. This is the Apple Insider Podcast, and we've got some news for you. One of the things that happened earlier this week was a rumor about an iPhone without any home button at all. The idea was that Touch ID would be built into the display. Dan, can you tell me what your thoughts are on this? Um, it's one of those things that sounds like it could be far out in the future. The the concern I have about it, I mean, the obvious benefit is that you can put a bigger screen on a smaller device if you don't have this margin to support a home button. But also the home button has been a very characteristic to, um, element of iOS devices, especially the iPhone. And changing it from a button to Touch ID, it's it's a very physical thing, and, and you know you can you can operate the phone without looking at it. So if if you integrate that in the screen, it'd be really cool to have basically a, a, the touch touch ID is a sensor that's scanning your finger. It's a, like a, almost like a camera, like a low resolution camera, <clears throat> like a scanner. So we've we've seen some patent applications that involve basically taking that technology and embedding it into the screen so that you could re, um, handle both touches and hard presses with force touch and even being able to scan your fingerprint through the screen and possibly scan multiple fingers that would be more secure, things like that. It would be a pretty significant change in the form factor of, of the phone and it would change how people use it. And it also affects things like accessibility. How do you use something if you're blind? Um, so there are some issues to work out, but you know, it's a kind of a cool idea. I don't think it's anywhere in the, in the next year or so. It would have to be a pretty significant jump, but we'll see what, what happens. So Mikey, yes, no home button, smart or stupid? Um, well, I think it is a definite leap. I think it could be very smart. Um, I think a platform that would be ripe for this kind of uh, innovation would be uh, iPad. Um, the home button seems kind of lost there now, especially when you think about how it's, well, rumored to be getting quite quite a bit larger, having that one um, stationary button on one side of the uh, display kind of makes things a bit difficult. Uh, but it's going to take a, lot, a long time, like Dan said, to kind of remap our brains into thinking. Um, outside of the home button box, as it were. Do you want this feature? Um, well, to me, the, uh, the home button, it, it does, I mean, it, it's not integrated with the screen at all. I mean, it's below the screen, so it's really not a big issue for me. Um, in fact, I, I oftentimes rest my thumb on it naturally holding the phone, so... Um, uh, I would want it if it means that the display would be a true edge-to-edge, uh, edge-to-edge panel, which would be really nice. I mean, that that is another benefit that could come out of this. Okay, I'm going to tell you what I think. I think it is highly possible that it's going to be stupid. I think it's. I think it could be awesome for iPads, where you're right, and a lot of things are gesture-based. But I, I just think that. There's something very good about having a home button. 
And there are people out there who don't use Touch ID because they're concerned and paranoid about their security, right? They only have 10 fingers. Someone can compel them to put their thumb down. Um, There are a lot of reasons why people don't want to use Touch ID. And I'm concerned about accessibility, like Dan was saying, Uh, reachability. And what do you do if you are sight impaired and can't locate where your home button is? Um, I don't know. I mean, the the accessibility features right now are. Uh, I, I don't know if you watch the um, the session on accessibility at WWDC or did, Dan. I don't even know. Did you go to that? I heard oh, it was there were a couple of things. You're talking about like voiceover. You, there's yeah, a lot of things voiceovers. You can do that you don't. Yeah. So I, I watched part of that um, session, which was, you know, I mean, pretty, pretty astounding stuff as far as what developers have been have been up to in that area that, you know, people really don't um, get to see or you know, need to need to see or access at all. Uh, but I, I don't know that that having not having a home button will affect the accessibility of say an iPhone on any you know significant level. No. It is kind of interesting. It's kind of a, a throwback to the whole conversation that wasn't too long ago when the iPhone first came out. People were saying that a phone with a big touchscreen and no physical keyboard was just not going to work. And Google was showing I could pull a keyboard out the side of it and BlackBerry had their keyboard and it was like, this is the thing. People care about this keyboard. And you had all these pundits saying that you know physical keys were where it's at. You just could not remove them. And people were, you know, it was obvious. If you're typing on a piece of glass, it's sort of not, um, it doesn't have that clickety feel of typing on a keyboard that we're all used to. And now everybody does. Everybody you have nowhere to locate where your fingers are. And, and of course, that problem's been solved. Yeah, I mean, we just look at it. And you know, even people with vision problems or, or other uh, physical problems with moving their fingers or whatever, it's possible to control it with your voice or some other, other um, mechanism or with voiceover. And there's a lot of these things that seem seem really obviously wrong until we get to the point where it's possible. And so it, this could be a thing where, you know, the home button feels very common for Apple. And in fact, other makers were getting rid of this. A lot of Android phones had sort of soft keys on the bottom and then they became uh, part of the screen. And then, you know, they're experimenting with a lot of things. <clears throat> Google originally had that trackball thing. Uh, all those things are gone. And if you look at Samsung, which you know, closely follows Apple, they have a home button that's a little slightly different shape, but it's in the same place and it does the same thing and um, and other things that have tried to compete against that. You know, LG has the button on the back that they were trying to have take off. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't really fly. Yeah. When it comes to reachability as a feature, we talked about this a little bit last time. You, you currently you double tap on the home button and how is a, a screen going to differentiate between double tap for a part of a game or something and double tap on the screen for reachability? Uh, I'd assume they'd have to incorporate a new gesture perhaps with force touch. I mean, I don't know the, the, um, the rollout could be, you know, first force touch, get people used to that. Then a year or two later, um, implement a non home button, iPad, and then after that, a couple of years, maybe bring it to iPhone. Or something. You know, you know how they, Apple is great on iterating uh, between their platforms. So, um, all right. So, Mikey, you're optimistic about this? Uh, yes or no? As far as it's going to become a reality, or 
that is a good idea. Even just you like the idea. I like the idea. Yeah. All right, Dan, you optimistic or not? Um, I, I'm taking a wait and see approach. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen, but I, I right now I like the home button where it's at, and uh, it's very natural. And although if you have a huge phone like the six plus, um, a lot of times I pick it up and I'm I have it the other way around, and because the screen flips around, you have to find out why this is not working. Oh, I have it upside down. I have to turn it around in my hand and put my finger on the button. So if you had that basically working in software, the whole screen was able to do your fingerprint, then it would give you more flexibility just to use it sort of without thinking. So cautiously optimistic. Great. I'm, I'm going to hold up the bottom and go with negative. <laughs> I will be the skeptic on this one. I, I think it's cool to see what they're going to do. I just like my home button. All right. All right. Let's talk about HomeKit. Uh, I recently got the Lutron Cassetta wireless starter kit. And Dan, you were in San Francisco and met with Joe Data, who we had on the podcast a few weeks back, all about Insteon. So tell me about your experience with Insteon so far. So I just recently, I ha- I've been sitting on the stuff for a couple of days, um, busy with some other things. I just plugged it in, and within 10 minutes, I had two switches and the bulb, the whole kit set up on an app. It's very simple. Um, very easy to use. You just plug it in, and for each each um, little thing you plug in, every there's an on-off module, a dimmer, and an LED bulb. Each one has a number on it. You just plug it into the app. You say, new device, here's the number, sets it up in your network. You can define rooms really quickly. You add your devices to a room. And I was really impressed. The app looks really great. Uh, it just worked immediately. I didn't run into any real problems. Um, I haven't tested it for a long period of time yet, so I have some testing yet to do, but um, it, in general, when I've when I've seen home automation stuff before, it seems there's, there's a lot of kind of frustration that I think is a barrier to people adopting it. And when you see just sort of the presentation of how all the things HomeKit can do, it can be sort of overwhelming. And you're thinking, how much programming yeah. do I want to do to just make my house, you know, the lights come on? But one of the things that we talked about when, when they were showing me sort of how, how some of the stuff works and what can, you can do with it is it's sort of addictive. Once you start setting it up, um, you want to set up more things. And you think, oh, wow, you know, here's, here's this lamp that's hard to get to the switch and I'm tired of plugging this in. Uh, wouldn't it be great if I had just another button on my app here? And, of course, with HomeKit, um, all these different companies that are selling their own proprietary systems can talk to HomeKit and it's controllable by Siri. So you can just say, hey, Siri, turn, turn on the kitchen lights or set the, set the room to the scene. You know, I'm coming home from work, whatever, and it has the lights dialed up to the 60% and this light goes off and, you know, the temperature goes down and the garage door locks or whatever. Um, it, it has some really cool potential for being really easy to use to the point where people are actually going to use it. Have you? I, I agree. Have you? Oh, go ahead, Mike. I'm sorry. I, have you tried any of the geofencing features or did you not get a chance to do that yet? Um, some of the geofencing stuff you can do requires like a proximity switch. Yeah, right. I mean, th- there's more conditional stuff that's coming in, in iOS 9 where you can say if if it's after 6 o'clock and I've um, walked into the motion sensor, then set all these lights to do this. So you can do more if-then kind of things. Um, yeah, so I'm looking at, see, I also had the opportunity to play with this. I had the Lutron kit, and so I'm looking at geofencing in Lutron's app, and I have a home location, and I have, uh, and, and it makes me mark exactly where the circle is on a radius map of where my home location is, and then I have 
things that I can do arriving home, and they're only after sunset, toggle on off, and activate a seam when I arrive home. And, and similarly, when I leave home, I have notify me if lights are on when I leave home and activate a scene when I leave home. And those work well? Well, we should talk about what working well means with my experience so far. Does it work, period? Uh, <laughs> uh, those things seem to work. So the kit that I got is, is two dimmer switches two remote controls for those dimmer switches so I can have physical remotes that are about the same size as an Apple TV remote uh, and also can control from the app. Uh, it has the bridge, and I can control via Siri. And so I plugged two nightstand lamps into each of the dimmers, and I set one in a room and set the other not in that same room so that I had the ability to see when I was turning a room on or off. And... I was able to do the geofencing, but all of this required so much work to get working that really I just want to stab myself. Mm. And and to, to tell you about that, right, I took it out of the box, I plugged in the dimmers to lights, I plugged in the bridge, and the app found the bridge and then wanted to update the firmware on the bridge, which is always a fantastic welcoming experience to a product, right? And then the app wouldn't connect to the bridge. So now I thought, oh, great, the firmware has killed the thing. No, no, it eventually got there, but I had difficulty connecting to the bridge where it would say, oh, we can't find it. So you log out and you retry and you type your password again and you log in. And in about 20 minutes of that, trying to connect to the bridge. And then I had difficulty connecting to the app where it would throw up a page saying web page not found error in the middle of the app after I'd connected to the bridge. And it's always disconcerting when you're using an app and you know they're going to use a web view, but you don't want to see the web view, right? You want it to feel like you're in the app experience. And they throw up this web page not found. Just brutal. So then then I started to add rooms to Siri. And I, I had my two lights set up. I had them both working. So I went ahead and went into the app and tried to add a room through their Siri integration panel. And you click on the plus and you name a room. So I named it Bedroom, because that's what it is. And it tells you that room's already existing. It does. Where? I didn't create that room. Where did that room come from? So it won't let me add that room. So I ended up naming a room Upstairs, so that I had, had something. That's more of a name you'd give to a zone anyway, but it was the only way I could fake it into letting me have a room. And just, guys. So home animation has always been kind of hard, right? Would you agree with that, Dan? Yeah, it's it's... Every maker is used doing their own thing. <clears throat> uh, I think with Instown, they've been around longer, and it's been a thing where I think we talked about this before. Where you know this is something where some guy would come out to your house and wire something up. It's kind of like home theater, right? The guy with the white van rolls out and does it for you, kind of thing. Yeah, and a lot of these tools and a lot of these products were kind of oriented towards a technical person setting it up and then being sort of easy to work afterward. And the sort of being sort of, sort of, where well, I think what what Apple's trying to do with HomeKit is take all these desperate different kind of products and make them work under an umbrella of strong licensing. And with both HomeKit and CarPlay and a lot of these initiatives, Apple is branching out. They're they're taking their ecosystem umbrella and not only dealing with their own stuff that they control, but they're extending to other partners and. It's kind of it's more similar to what Google's facing with Android and trying to work with all these different partners and kind of herding cats and in, in, a, in a 
trying to get different players to work together. And these companies are not really all, always on the same par as Apple. I mean, none of them are. Yeah. And so you start dealing with problems that you don't think of because there's actually a lot of complication under, under the hood. Right. I want to stop you right there just so we can finish off the HomeKit part of this conversation and we'll segue. But what I want to say is, is so your experience with Insteon, positive so far? Yes. I really like their app. It's really well done. And this, the stuff seems to be really easy to set up and get running. Perfect. Lutron, uh, obviously my experience wasn't quite there. The Siri part of it was was okay once I'd gotten the room part set up. but uh, And the demo worked beautifully. I could demonstrate this all day long, and it looks like I'm a genius. But the setup was difficult. So I think they're still a little closer to the white van guy rolling around setting this stuff up than, than it being every person who ought to have home automation going on. So CarPlay, you just mentioned CarPlay. And, and we've had a couple of good announcements with CarPlay recently. Things like, um, oh, GM putting CarPlay across their line in 2016, and the first car getting it is the Corvette Stingray, and then it's going to follow on with Cadillac and Buick and, and the Chevrolet Spark and Malibu and things like those. Um, so you were saying that Apple is is really reaching out into this kind of space that Google's been confronting these problems in, that the idea of, of putting their software in other people's products. Yeah, I mean, Android, by definition, is sort of a generic software for everyone to kind of take in different directions. And that sounds like such a good idea until we started seeing what actually happens when that occurs. And it's just been a mess year after year after year of any time. I mean, even if even people who love Android talk about companies that are doing their own thing, the Motor, Motor Blur and, the, you know, Samsung's, what do they got, um, Touch Excitement or whatever, <laughs> you know, their, their layer of proprietary stuff on top of Android where to touch whiz? make their yeah touch whiz which is a terrible name um, yeah they should have gone with touch excitement yeah it would be much better than <laughs> touch boo yeah um, when you have all these different companies trying to experiment they're they're adding new complications to the thing and so at this point Google is now backtracking and saying hey wait we're, we're you know they're basically trying to do an iOS thing where they're saying we want to control the the look we're going to create this material design. Everything's going to look the same. Everything's going to be the same. And they're still on the marketing cycle of saying Android is for people who are all different and don't want the same thing. And someone's like, well, which one is it? But what with Apple, with both CarPlay and HomePlay and some of the other stuff that they're doing, uh, they're working with different makers and trying to get them playing to the same level that Apple does internally. It's much easier for Apple because they don't make as many different types of products and they have much more control over the hardware and software and can blend it together. And so things like Siri and being able to have watch apps and have everything sort of kind of flow together on a few different types of hardware so you're controlling these other products through them um, is a new approach to something that's been around for a long time. I mean, remember like the second like Android 2, one of their big thing that year, which I think was around 2009, was home automation. Never took off. The Android at home thing, and that, that was that was 2011 because I was at that I/O that year. I thought it was before Honeycomb. Maybe it was the same year as Honeycomb, but yeah, it was just kind of you know it was like this this idea that sounded really good but didn't take off. It was it was ice cream sandwich year I think. And the the idea of uh, home automation in general is very old. I remember way back in the day. Um, oh God, late, late 80s. There was this idea of. Probably even earlier than that, it's probably mid '80s when Apple came out with the well, Apple Talk, 
It's like this mm-hmm. cheap way to network things together. Networking was kind of a new idea at the time, you know, in a home. Right. They used the, uh, the the same Apple cable you'd use for your keyboard. You could connect your Macs together. Yeah, it was basically you're, you're connecting things with a sort of daisy-chained um, serial cable. But there was a – I think it was sort of a parody. It was I think it was in Mac World at the time where they were writing the story about how Apple was going to connect your kitchen and have all these appliances that would – plugged together and it was called Kitchen Talk or some kind of joke like that. And that's kind of what we're getting to now is where you could have all these smart appliances and smart devices and sensors and, you know, things, environment sensors, your security system. You can have all these things going on in your home and have a system that controls it so that it's not just this inordinately complex, difficult to manage thing where it sort of fits in a framework where everything works and a company like Insteon can make an app that controls not only its own products, but you can also have other HomeKit products in there, and Siri can you know you can give a command to Siri, and you can have devices from different manufacturers that it just works with, and that's that's an impressive accomplishment. So some of the problems that we're seeing, remember that HomeKit is really only a year old, mm-hmm. and CarPlay is also you know Apple had really aggressive targets of how fast they wanted to get into cars, and the automotive industry isn't like the tech industry; it doesn't move that quickly. <laughs> 10 years is a fast-moving setup for the automotive industry. Yeah. So, I mean, when did CarPlay was first launched? I mean, they first started talking about it. I think it was the end of 2012. Or I think that was iOS and the cars when they first brought up the idea of doing this. And then 2013, they were talking about how they're going to get it into cars in 2014 model year. So it's a little bit, little bit behind what they would like to have done, but it's still impressive how quickly they're moving. Yeah, in 2011, I had an Airport Express that I uh, had hacked to run off of USB instead of the AC power, and I named that router CarPlay, and I put it in my car and connected it to an aux cable, and I had AirPlay in the car. <laughs> and I rapidly understood at one point that Apple was going to move into the car, and they weren't going to do it like that. They were going to do it a lot better. <laughs> the truth is, I'm a, I'm a fan of CarPlay. You know, I have the Pioneer, I've had the Alpine... And now the Kenwood announcement has just come out. So there's another aftermarket option for people. And I, I really strongly believe that having these kind of systems in the car is a good thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm wishing my car had it. I have, because... What, what car do you have? <clears throat> I have a 2011 BMW. And it has pretty good navigation that I, I paid a lot of money for. Um, but there's no no integration between the... So if I put an address in the car, it's like a totally different way to do it. It doesn't sync to your phone or anything like that. Um, it doesn't work with Siri or anything like that, of course. And so uh, it's such a totally different experience when I put a location in my car and I say, you know, you can just pull up the phone and say, hey, Siri, so give me directions to the nearest, you know, whatever. And not only does it just start working on the phone, but it will also on my watch, it will start giving mm-hmm. me tap, tap directions. Um, so you don't even have to looking, be looking at the phone. Just yeah. like, here's the turn coming up, tap, tap. Oh, that means right turn. So, and, and for a lot of our listeners who have cars, and you know, some people in San Francisco clearly don't because it doesn't make sense to own a car in San Francisco. But the thing is, when you're trying to upgrade radios, right, you can have an older car, and upgrading the radio is very easy. When you have a newer car like your BMW, there's so much integrated into it that it, it, it may be impossible, or if it is possible you have to make trade-off decisions, right? There are people that have climate controls integrated into the front face of the dashboard where the radio goes. There's, uh, there's, there's onboard car dashboard display stuff that goes on there. Um, 
you know, when I when I changed out the radio in my Cadillac, I gave up the ability to have the seat memories because the seat memories were stored in in the system that connected to that radio. I think so. I was able to put in CarPlay, but I had to trade make that trade off. Yeah. So I mean, it, it's it's evolving, and I think one of the things with CarPlay, if I if I remember this correctly, in iOS nine, not only does it get Wi-Fi support, which will require new hardware, I think, but also um, the ability to for car makers to expose more of their uh, proprietary stuff, climate control, things like that, within the CarPlay interface. So it'll be interesting right. to see how this kind of plays out. Right. So what's happening in, in iOS 9 CarPlay is that you get a car app on the CarPlay display that's right in line with the maps, messages, phone, and so forth. And when you tap on that, that allows car manufacturers to tie into the, the existing car telematics, the windows, the climate control, and other things like that. Um, for aftermarket, like I'm currently doing, that's not even an issue. It will be kind of cool. There, there's like I know BMW has a lot of apps, and the kinds of things you can do if your car is enabled with apps, and you can, um, you know, some car makers let you um, remotely start it, bring it up to temperature, whatever. Uh, one of the things they they showed one of the complications on, for Apple Watch was a little indicator showing when your Volkswagen was charged up, your electric car. So it it not only shows you what the charge is on your car. But also, you can use the new feature in WatchOS 2 where you turn turn the the digital crown and it shows you in the future. See, you could basically calculate it instantly in real time how long it's going to take for the car to charge up. We'll see, oh, it's going to be charged up at 8 o'clock. By 7.30, I'm going to have enough battery to drive to L.A., whatever. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. So one of the things that we don't currently have in CarPlay is a Beats music service. I fully expect that to change when Beats launches for real. And let's talk a little bit about Beats 1, Dan. So Beats 1 is part of Apple Music. It's sort of like their free tier. But instead of having this idea of let's allow people to stream music and then throw in ads, which is kind of the model almost of iTunes, uh, um, iTunes Radio. It was sort of like kind of a Pandora um, thing where you can't just play anything you want, but you, you get sort of a playlist and you can skip through a few things. That's what Google just showed off. Um, that's what Pandora is doing. And Spotify is a little better version of that where you can actually pick any songs you want, but it's ad-supported and doesn't really contribute that much money. Um, Beats is kind of an interesting sort of middle ground where Apple's saying, <clears throat> we're going to make a radio station that's free that you can listen to, and it's going to be a tastemaker. It's going to have real talent behind it, people who really live and breathe radio. It's not just um, sort of a algorithm playing top hits. Um, it's sort of a throwback to real radio where people tuned in to listen to real people talking about what's actually happening in the music industry and new talent and kind of providing a foundation for things. So it's kind of interesting on a number of levels. Um, the, the other thing that they're adding into it is a lot of celebrities are going to be on it. Because Apple's really taking this next step and trying to save music. I mean, remember back in the day, it was Napster and you know, everybody was just kind of stealing music. And Apple kind of stepped up and said, okay, here's a marketplace to sell music. And it was sort of a give and take thing where, on one hand, they made it so you, you, couldn't, you weren't forced to buy an album. You weren't forced to buy two good songs and ten fillers. 
you could buy whatever songs you wanted to. And the music industry kind of pushed back against that because that was their whole model of we wanted to sell albums. But once they realized selling albums is not going to happen anymore, we need to sell actual products that people want to buy because the alternative is just people are going to steal it. Once that happened, then there was this kind of new wave of, you know, basically the next Napsters, all these streaming products that are saying, well, here's an alternative to buying music is being able to basically use Napster for free with ads, or you can pay a little bit of money for it. The problem is there's not enough people paying for it for that to be a sustainable thing for the music industry. So Spotify has, what is it, something like 40 to 60 million users, but only about a quarter of those are actually paying subscribers. So combining their, their limited ad revenue with the amount that people are actually paying, the $10 a month or something, uh, works out to being very little per song play. Um, and unless you have a critical mass of people that are paying for it, unless you have something like 100 million users, that's just not enough money. So Apple's really trying to do this with scale. So Apple Music is, I, I think they're telling uh, radio labels or you know labels that they want to achieve 100 million subscribers. Because at that level, you can actually stream things that it makes sense to, for artists to stream their music. They're getting enough money from millions of people to where it makes up for the fact that they're no longer selling albums. So, right. so having as a, a gateway to that, having a radio station that pulls people in and says, here's new stuff that's happening and gives people a reason to either buy music or buy a subscription so that they can explore music on their own. It's kind of an interesting idea and the fact that you're not just pulling in talent, but you're having the music industry promote this as a service of this is a, a, a functional model for paying for music. It's not just you're going to listen, you're going to be forced to listen to ads, or you're not going to be able to skip. Um, it's more carrot and less restriction. Cool. So one of the stories that came out that Mikey wrote about this week was about royalty rates. Mikey, yep. take it away. Um, yeah. So, I mean, royalty rates have been a hot button topic or recently became a uh, kind of a firestorm this week with um, Tay-Tay, Taylor Swift, uh, posting to her blog that, you know, she was shocked and disappointed at, um, that Apple would not be, or Apple was considering not paying artists and publishers and labels for uh, the right to stream the songs during a free 90-day trial period for uh, new Apple Music users. Um, Apple quickly reversed that and uh, said they would be paying. And the question then became, how much would they be paying during this free trial period? And uh, it came out uh, this week that they'll be paying um, two-tenths of one cent per play. So it's, uh, it's a rate comparable to those uh, like um, services like Spotify and um, I believe uh, Pandora, the or yeah, they're, they're free tiers. I think it's, um, that's what they pay or, um, supposedly pay. So, I mean, it's a good, it's a win for, uh, for indie labels, especially, um, who, you know, don't have these huge revenue streams from, uh, iTunes and they, they don't have that much exposure. So, I mean, they quickly, uh, signed up right after, um, this news broke or probably before, you know, um, but it also broke around the same time that these uh, indie labels like um, under the umbrella of Beggars Group and Merlin signed on to uh, Apple Music streaming. So it's a, it's really kind of a win 
for Apple in um, in the sense that they get this kind of free publicity that they're not the uh, the big uh, the big monster that you know the uh, recording industry has kind of made them out to be with with iTunes. But um, yeah, I don't know what what you guys think about it as far as the point uh, two cents per play. I don't think it's the recording industry that's that's made Apple out to be bad as much as the media that has has never cared about how much streaming rights were before until Apple got involved and then it becomes kind of clickbait news mm-hmm. and scrutinized. Very coincidental, huh? <clears throat> yeah, suddenly that everyone's interested in actually how much artists are getting paid. And really, um, one of the things I, I wrote when the first thing happened, um, when Taylor Swift was talking about how artists should get paid for things, um, one of the issues that looked like it was affecting Apple's negotiation, because Apple has a lot of money, and really these streaming rates are not that high. It's not that big of a deal for Apple to drop. It's really like a few million. Um, the, the amount that Spotify pays, it, what Apple's paying for this first 90 days trial, what they would be paying is very little. So it's not like Apple was not trying to spend money. Um, I think one of the issues is antitrust. If, if Apple is basically saying, here's we're paying for three months of service, that's something that other companies that are struggling to have any revenue at all, like Spotify and Pandora, can say, wait, you're, you're dumping your product into the market, um, which is kind of unfair. Uh, at the same time, because we know the FTC is scrutinizing Apple's deals with streaming companies and how much they're paying and how much they're offering to pay. So I think that played into it. I think a bigger thing, though, in talking with music execs and seeing some of the the comments people have been posting is that Apple really needs the industry to promote this. So they can't just push it out as a service. Remember the whole thing with Ping and some of that. I mean, part of that was that they were partnering with Facebook and then Facebook pulled the carpet underneath them. But part of it was it was sort of unfinished and they did have some high profile support from, you know, stars like Lady Gaga or whoever who were on this, this site. But, um, there was a lot of resistance to throwing all their, putting all their support behind Apple. There was kind of a fear that Apple would be the, the big monopoly and um, not. So one of the things was, you know, there were the music labels were giving DRM music to Amazon free or first, and not allowing Apple to have not 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 allowing Apple to sell DRM free music through iTunes. So they were trying to kind of create competition for Apple, and I think. Since then, we've seen so little real competition developing that the music industry is realizing, wait, if we don't, if we don't get behind something and make it real, we're going to get nothing but ad streaming revenue, which is very little, and people stealing music. And that's even worse. So I think Apple is really trying to build partnerships with these companies. And to do that, this leverage of saying, hey, if, you, if we give people a three-month membership, that will get them hooked on this product and they'll love it. And they'll like the you know connect features and being able to have connect with artists and things like that, and they'll want to pay for it, and they'll want to support artists, and so I think Apple's effort to have this free free period was partly antitrust, where they're saying labels have to help us do this, and partly was sort of leverage to say, hey, we're, we're going to pay you bigger rates in the future than anybody else is, we're going to give you more customers than anybody else is, so contribute and and um, provide. You know, support us, sign on for this free period, 
so that customers will actually get a chance to use it and like it and and sign up. Um, and the controversies surrounding that, you know, with Swift, allowed Apple to kind of say, "Hey, okay, we're gonna we're gonna pay rates comparable to free rates or the ad rates that other companies pay." So I think they found a middle ground. So it wasn't so much, you know. Taylor Swift winning against this huge company that was opposed to it. I think it was trying to figure out how do we find this middle ground. And the way that it was discovered, I mean, the way that it kept Apple Music has been on top of the tech news for the last three or four days in the week before it launches, is has totally outweighed any payments that Apple could make. So it's kind of a win for everybody. You make this sound also reasonable. You can also take kind of a conspiracy theory thing, like it was all planned. <laughs> I, don't, I don't. I don't think anybody is, was genius enough to figure that out. I, I mean, it's, but it, it certainly starts to sound sketchy because of how it how it worked out so fluidly. But mm. it does and kind of she, feel like. And uh, let's see. Swift put a- Taylor Swift posts to a Tumblr somewhere, and Eddie Q responds on Twitter. I am twirling my mustache at the moment, and. Uh, and every media, every newspaper, every television station gets on and starts talking about Apple Music for a week and putting it headline news. No, no publicity is bad publicity. The, the truth is, I got what I want out of the story. You know what I wanted. I, I wanted to use all the pictures in my photo library of Eddie Q doing karaoke. And I got to, and it was glorious. I didn't really need to see any of those pictures again. What did you? Th- Those are fantastic. I put together a photo album that I clipped out of the uh, keynotes. So we we talked about this earlier. Um, what was your impression of the whole music part of the keynote? It was a kind of like developer keynote, and all of a sudden it's like one more thing, and it was a bunch of music people on stage, and a lot of people have been very critical and saying this is really sloppy, and you know all these music people weren't prepared. And so here here's what I think about this. We are used to seeing an Apple keynote be rehearsed within an inch of its life, right? The, the old legend was that when there was a jobs keynote, that everyone would practice in an auditorium for days ahead of the keynote, that jobs had a spiral bound notebook with his notes for exactly what was going to happen when, and what his key points were for speaking. And that, that this, none of this went wrong ever. And even when some minor glitch happened that they'd riff on it, but, Basically, this thing was rehearsed to the point of of perfection. And Eddie Q's presentation didn't have that same rehearsed feel. It felt like there were slowdowns and high points and glitches with the right music coming up. And some of that was excusable the same way you'd excuse a digital camera not working for jobs in New York in 2001. But some of this felt like it was just off the cuff and and in some ways like Eddie Q was speaking about his love for music his personal love for music and it didn't resonate yeah and kind of silly dancing and stuff i i think <clears throat> like you say i mean apple jobs had had such a very tight presentation style and expected that of other people so when anybody would mess up or anything that was kind of like what was the what was the Ankeny toys, like the radio-controlled cars that they had? WC? Yeah. I think it was last year. The, uh, Anki, the Anki artificial Anki Drive, Anki. artificial intelligence-driven remote-controlled cars. Yeah, it was kind of a cool idea, but that, it, it sort of flopped as a presentation. It wasn't, didn't, didn't come off perfect. Um, and that was kind of, people talked about that, like, oh, this is a big deal. If you go to any other 
company, whether it's Microsoft or Google or Samsung, their presentations Samsung. are <laughs> terrible. HTC. Well, the, the skits that Samsung runs, yeah, my God. just terrible. I mean, just tone deaf and sloppy and boring. HP will like, come out with 100 different products that nobody cares about and rattle on for hours. I remember, remember when... The, 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 last HP, the, the last HP keynote that I cared about was the WebOS one where they showed us we were going to get tablets and laptops running WebOS and it was going to be an ecosystem. Yeah, and before that, Palm had... Sorry, Mikey, did you, did you stifle a laugh there? No, of course not. I mean, like, rest in peace. And that was supposed to be like the great thing that was all these Apple developers that left Apple and you know, joined Palm to create this new thing. And there were a lot, there's a lot of excitement behind it. And even though it had a lot of the same DNA, it just didn't really function. Well, you know where all those guys ended up, right? The Palm guys? Yeah. Well, they started at HP and bled to where? They're all at Google. They're all working on Android. What happened? I know well, some of WebOS people that are working on Android, but... So, so what happened is that there were a number of people working on HP WebOS and Palm WebOS that were H1B visa holders. And you pretty much, when you get awarded those for your employees, you need to start the process of renewing them right away just because the, the gears of government grind slowly. And the Palm people in charge of that whiffed. They did not start renewing, and they didn't start looking at until the visas were coming to expire and had to be renewed. And it was at that point that HP was, was beginning to fall apart, and Google said, we know how to solve this problem. And so they picked up all of the H-1B employees that were working on WebOS and brought them to Android. Well, some of the top talent at WebOS at Palm went to Apple, the guy that yes. created the notification system and some of, yeah. some of the more valuable things. So, um, yeah, it's kind of interesting to see how things flow around. But just in general, I mean, presentations by tech companies are usually awful. And, you know, even Tidal, that was the music industry, a bunch of artists that you think, you know, these are people that their business is beating on stage in front of people. And it was, it's embarrassing to watch. And so it's not too crazy that, you know, when Drake got, got on stage and he's just kind of talking sort of extemporaneously, it felt like. Um, I think it was kind of strange that everyone freaked out. I think there, there's something about when, whenever Beats gets mentioned, everyone just freaks out about how it was such a terrible idea that Apple bought them and how their hardware is so terrible and it has weights in it. <laughs> you know, exactly. I, I want to stop and say, when you say everyone, you mean like people in this insular tech circle, right? Yes. Because not everyone really cares, right? <laughs> no, I don't, I, don't, I don't think the majority of people care. I think the people in the tech industry that are writing the headlines and trying to create what people think, unsuccessfully, I think, because they've been telling us for a long time that we had to buy Samsung and had to buy Android and had to buy Windows, and they haven't really, you know, these are the same people that were telling people not to buy iPods. They're not, they're certainly not very influential, but they talk as if they are, and if, if what they have to say is really important. Yeah, so you, you alluded to this. One of the stories was the idea that Beats headphones were not a good value because they were putting weights in them to make them feel heavier and therefore feel like quality. Yeah, it's very fashionable to talk about how crappy Beats are. And well, I mean to be the, the, to be fair, it, it's not. I mean that's just one of the problems with Beats headphones. Um, they are the, overpriced, and uh, 
Well, let's not, let's not go down you, that do, road. Do, talk about do they guarantee the audio quality that their reputation seems to indicate? Well, it's a question, right? And and yes, you can say, no, they aren't audiophile grade for my viewer, pure virgin ears that can tell with gold connectors and gold cables. Fine. But um, they're, they're certainly a, a reasonable pair of headphones, yes? They're... They're middling headphones that are... They're, there may be better value for money out there, but they're a fine pair of product to buy, right? Uh, I think a lot of that money is going to the wrong place, or at least it, you know, it was. I mean, it's all about the design. But, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that if you, if, you want If that. you look at any products that kids like, though, whether it's Nike shoes or you know, any kind of clothing, it's not about how great it is or how cost-effective it is per ounce of product. It's about, is this some, you know, a lot of it is marketing. And well, I think the, reason, the reason why Apple bought Beats was not to like get their technology and how to make headphones because Apple could already make good products. Oh yeah, it was about tapping into this music savvy industry. That, customer. that you know, if you look at LA and you look at Silicon Valley, they're very different. They work on they're good at very different things, and the things that Apple's good at and the things that Pixar is good at are not. They're very different than the things that are, people are creating value in, in in the LA music industry, and that's what Beats was. Found, you know, that's that's their roots, and so for Apple to be savvy enough to make an well, acquisition in a different direction, I think was pretty incredible, because it's not Tim Cook is not somebody who builds, you know, music stuff that taps into the fourteen to twenty year old market where Beats has a very strong presence. I've talked to a lot of younger people, and their impression of Beats is extremely different from these people who are in their 30s and 40s and talking about how Beats is not a good value and all this stuff. It doesn't really matter. If, if your target audience likes a product and they're wanting to buy it, that's value. So I think it just the criticism was... Well, yeah. But I, I don't know. I, on that point, I think it also goes... I mean, Apple is also very marketing savvy they they also build a reputation but it's in a different direction but it's it kind of is a counterpoint to what what beats is doing i mean beats is it's for lack of a better word it's uh, it's about the hype and they're a marketing machine and they unlike apple it, it doesn't have the um product cachet to back up what they're what they're saying i think is what um, most of the detractors are that that's their point. Mikey, the tech whisperer. No, I mean, I'm just saying, I think that's what the, that, that's what people are they're, The pundits are, you know, they're, they're kind of poo pooing beats on, on those merits. It's yeah. Beats is also a much smaller company that, you know, they're what you're saying is that they are basically a marketing company that mm -hmm. contracted out their, production of stuff to they're, they're not anywhere in the category of Apple of course in terms of build, yeah. being able to design and build products but I, I that's not what Apple was buying is what I'm saying is Apple was buying the marketing savvy and the um, the people who know how to connect with these artists that if well, you watch any videos any popular videos they have beats pills and they have beats headphones and that's how that's why kids are buying this stuff is because it's it's connected and people know, you know, they know that it's part of the culture that they're representing their age group or whatever. So, mm -hmm. I mean, yes, Apple wasn't buying high quality um, headphone design. Apple can do that. Apple can fix that problem. 
I think what they're buying into is real market savvy. And, and that's the kind of thing that you do an acquisition for is to get into somewhere where you don't know how to do it yourself. Yep. Now, when it comes to the, the idea that they were putting extra weight into the product to make it feel better, first of all, you, you noted this when we talked before that the, uh, the hinge was made of metal and that's not exactly extra, right? That's not, they're, they're not throwing in extra lead weights to make it heavy. That's just, we made this part out of metal because it's better. Right. right. And what I wanted to add to that is that there are a number of products out there not made by Apple where, where people do know that heavier feels substantial and there are totally legitimate reasons to put weight into a product that otherwise would be light and feel cheap. You know, there are USB hubs that fall off desks, right? I had a, a portable mixer that had two or three channels on it. And a mixer just needs a PCB board. There's, there's nothing to it. And you open it up, and sure enough, there are pieces of lead glued to the bottom of the inside of the case to keep it from falling off your desk. So this kind of criticism against Apple and Beats is, is really sort of a non-starter for me because this is something that many, many products do, and it's not a, a bad thing necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's part of product design. Yeah, you, you have a desired result, and the desired result is does not fall off desk. What are you going to do? I mean, the most interesting part to me is that, that those conversations keep happening and that people are just constantly talking about how terrible Beats is. And you know, there's a lot of terrible products out there that they could be talking about, but the fact that they're constantly talking about Beats tells you something about what the motivation is. It's not that they're trying to warn everybody that this is a terrible product is that they're just trying to constantly create the sort of propagandist noise about how terrible everything Apple is and everything that's connected to Apple and anything they buy. And um, that's based in fear because they realize Apple is a pretty powerful force right now. They have lots of money. And before they had money, they were beating everybody strategically. Now that they have money, it's looking pretty... You know, a couple years ago, you could say Samsung was a strong competitor to Apple. At this point, Samsung is copying Apple egregiously and they're still not that you know they don't they lost that perceived edge that they had and there's nobody else in android that's making money and even these you know like um Xiaomi and these companies that oh they're going to come storming out of china and take over the world no they're not a threat either so what is apple's competitor is it microsoft what is google going to f- you know come up with a strategy and do something besides copy apple stuff a couple years later well said so, Dan, parting thought to the end of the podcast. My parting thought is if you look at iOS 9 and, and a number of technologies that Apple released or iterated upon, built upon some more at WWDC, they're entering a new phase of kind of confidence in that they're not afraid of showing off what they're working on. This whole idea that WWDC is restricted to everybody but developers is gone. Everybody can talk about this stuff because I think... Apple doesn't have that fear that they're the smallest company in the room and they're fighting to you know, get on top anymore. They are on top. And the number of companies that can really even compete with Apple, are it's hard to really identify a strong competitor. And it'll be interesting to see how well Apple keeps its pace going and whether or not... Um, I, th- I think the really Apple's biggest competitive threat is incompetence if it if it screws up its lead it's kind of apple's lead um it's apple's lead to lose so as long as they can keep executing i think they're going to do really well because i don't think they really face any significant outside threats 
But that's the biggest problem is if you don't have threats, what keeps you going? And so far, we've seen Apple's kind of driving itself. So I hope that continues. Brilliant. Mikey, your parting thought for the week. Um, parting thought. Parting thought is uh, on HomeKit is just the – from the experiences that you two were describing, I, I it's, it's an interesting area that I'm personally – um, looking into right now, and I'm very excited to see what is going to happen in the future. And uh, for me, I think HomeKit um, not only is just for how people think is just for iOS devices. I think it's going to actually um, help the whole home automation uh, field, not just with Siri, but um, I'm really interested in the uh, geofencing features and how everything. Um, can work together under one ecosystem. And hopefully Apple will be able to uh, bring that together under one umbrella um, that, you know, it, it's been so hard for other manufacturers to do up to this point. And, um, you know, I think, I think they might succeed with this. So it's exciting times. Thank you. CarPlay and HomeKit. Those are my parting thoughts. I love CarPlay. I want more of it. I want more people having the experience that I enjoy with it. I think it's brilliant. With HomeKit, I like HomeKit when it works. I, I like the Siri control. Uh, the one thing that I can think of where Siri doesn't quite handle the way I want it to is that late at night, I need to change the temperature on the thermostat. And currently, I open an application to do that. If I have to start speaking late at night, that's not a good situation for other people that are sleeping. But bigger than that, because that's a minor complaint, is that right now we're in this phase of home automation, and we've been in it since home automation began, where everything is a glorified remote control. It's on-off. It's dim. It's set a scene for me. It's set this for me. It's that for me. The geofencing is interesting because now we're talking about doing something smart based on something else that I'm doing. We saw the beginnings of this with Nest learning a thermostat, where it sort of learns my behavior by proximity and learns my habits for what I want the temperatures to feel like at what times of day. And I want for everything else to get that smart and smarter. So it's not just, am I coming home? Am I leaving home? But it's when I come home, what kinds of things do I like to have happen generally? And can those things happen without me setting up a scene for them and initiating a scene? I don't want remote controls. I want smart things to happen for me. Mm. And we're not there yet, but I want to get there. Amen. Amen. So let's wind it up. This has been the Apple Insider Podcast with Dan calling in from San Francisco. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> Where can we find you on the internet, Dan? I am. Uh, I write for a website called Apple Insider, and oh, also, good? yeah, it, it's good. You should read it. But um, the other, the other thing that I do is I I post stuff on Twitter at Daniel Aaron, and I'm also on Instagram. Same thing, Daniel Aaron everywhere. E R A N. So that's my stuff. That's your stuff, Mikey. Where can people find you on the interwebs? Uh, same place uh, at Daniel Aaron. Oh. No way. <laughs> no, uh, at Mikey Campbell 81 on the Twitter machine. And um, I'm also working for this small website called Apple Insider. Although I haven't seen Daniel there. So you know, maybe we'll cross paths one day. I just did a story on the, uh, the new Apple store in San Francisco that's going up. The big glass oh, box. Yeah, I saw that. Huge yeah. doors that open that's up. Awesome. 
Is it uh, I saw that it's pretty my uh, my friend works at, like across the street from that and he uh, he's been giving me the updates on it. I kind of want to visit just to see the grandeur. Well, I'm your host Victor Marks. I'm at V Marks on Twitter and this has been the Apple Insider podcast. If Mikey launches a music service or Daniel puts lead in products, we'll tell you all about it next week. Please leave positive reviews on iTunes. All right.